So this morning, I want to start with asking a question to all of us. Just with the start of the new year, I'm hoping that today you will leave here feeling inspired, feeling um, uplifted, and really um, passionate for this year to come. Because I believe God is going to do amazing things. You know, and many of us, we might have woken up this morning, even myself. I mean, I'm, I'm coming out of holiday, so work starts in two days' time. And that's a terrible thing to contemplate, that I'm going to be back at the grindstone. Um, and it can feel quite lonely. Here we arrive, go to church again, be in this place. But actually, we're part of something so much bigger. You know, and God is doing something all the time. When we're sleeping, God is working. And He's doing things all over the world. And this year, there's going to be, I really believe it, an explosion of church plants across the world. They might not be big, but more and more people that love God, that are looking for Him, that are searching for Him, um, starting to meet together and, and churches being planted. And we're part of that. You're not just some nobody. In some ways, you're a nobody, like we all are nobodies outside of Him. But actually, you're something, you're here for a purpose and for a reason. And I want to speak into that this morning. Um, so I want to ask this question, why are you here? And I want us to think about this for ourselves. And by the end of it, hopefully you've got a deeper answer than maybe the answer you came in with. Why is it that you would get up out of bed on a Sunday morning and become and be, and be part of this congregation or this church here in Somerset West? I mean, the weather is beautiful outside today. I know for some of the guys here, it's the last day to go and get crayfish. Could be out at the ocean um, getting, getting craze or getting fish. But here you're sitting in church. Donovan's here in church. Arno's here in church. Yeah. And why not be at the beach, you know? Why are we here? A lot of people, I believe, in this country, I don't think it's necessarily us in this place, but there are people that go to church out of obligation, out of duty. Um, we live in quite a religious um, country. We've had a lot of, of Christianity infiltrate this country, so many people perhaps feel every now and again to go to church is just a good thing. It's something I need to do. It makes me a good person. That's a Sunday Christian or a Christmas Christian, um, perhaps going to church on those special days, and then they've done their duty. Um, others of us, even in this congregation, it might be because I don't want my leader to give me a phone call and eventually be on my case, like, where have you been? So go to church every now and again, make sure I'm there twice, three times a month, at least show face. Um, some of us, it might be in the younger generation, we are desperate for relationship. You know, I think I speak to the Stellenbosch guys, it might be a lot of the time you see people coming into your congregation wanting relationship, wanting connection with people, wanting friendships. And those are good things, actually, um, good needs. And in church, Hopefully, people find authenticity, feel I'm loved, I'm seen, I'm actually a part of something. I want to be part of something. But that even is not the ultimate reason for why you might find yourself in church. For others of us in the 21st century, we were a very consumer-driven society. Um, we like to, to get things. And so perhaps church becomes a place where you go to receive, to get something. And it's a, it's, this is a good place to be. So you've maybe gone and shopped around, literally shopped. And decided, okay, this is the place where I want to kind of come and get something on a Sunday morning. And it'll empower me for the week. And that's what going to church is all about. But it is always obviously more than that. And I think for many of us, if we had to answer that question deeper, we are here for deeper reasons than, than that. We're not here just because of friendship or just because of obligation or duty or something like that. It does go deeper. Um, so I want to read, first of all, from Ephesians 2 verse 19 to 20. So, And I'm hoping all of us will leave here with a much deeper revelation of why. what is the church? Who is the church of God? And why are we here? What are we called to? So Paul writes and says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Holy Spirit. Isn't that a beautiful description of actually what the church really is? Once before you knew God, before you repented, before you believed, before you came to faith in Christ, you were literally an alien and a foreigner with no hope, deserving nothing but death. And then God came and he saves you and he reconciles you to himself. And because of that, you are saved into something. You're not just saved to be an island. You're not just saved to be alone and then to continue your life. You are saved into a people and into a household and into a family. And together, that family is busy being built into something that is beautiful for for Jesus, a dwelling place of God. And outside of family, we cannot thrive. You know, you might be able to survive as a Christian outside of family, but you will never thrive. You have to be saved into a household. So my own story, I thought of it, you know, why did I come to Josh Shen? Why am I here? Um, And I, I go back to when I was 22 years old. I'm now 38 years old. And at the age of 22, I just, I was finishing university, moving into my first year out of university. And I was in the Methodist church at that time, St. Mark's Methodist, a wonderful church. I was a born-again believer. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I'd been baptized. Um, hadn't had the best example of family, and so I was a little bit fractured and um, I think at sea in myself at that time in my life and searching for something. And my mom heard about Joshua Generation Church that had just started in Tableview a couple of years before, maybe one or two years before. And she went to this church and she met a guy called John Jacobs, a guy from the UK. And this guy, John, was part of the original five guys that planted with Andrew in um, Bloberg Strand or Tableview or wherever. And he, he met her and he chatted to her and he said, yeah, I'd love to meet me. And I don't know if he'd try to phone me or something, but one day he just knocked on my door. And there's this British guy, John Jacobs, at, at the door saying, do you want to go and have coffee? He's from a church called Josh Jen. Does, do I want to connect? And that was my first experience of this congregation was and I, I really when I think about this I felt this is God God brought me into this place God sent a, a guy from the UK who became part of an original five um, with Andrew to then come and like knock on my front door in Edgemead and actually say don't you want to come be part of us or come and meet um, and when I went to Josh Jen for the first time I then re- realized this was what I'd been looking for there was there was family and there was love and for the first time I think I started to feel These are a people in which I can actually grow together. This is a family that's going to grow me and mature me. Um, I came to see fathers and mothers. I think for the first time when I stepped into this church at the age of 22, I hadn't had a very, very good experience of what healthy family looked like. And here I got to actually see fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, um, other young believers, people with me that could actually shape me and mold me. I would meet often for coffee with, with, with Russell and guys like Mike Davies and just ask them questions. And they would never really preach at me or talk to me about God or anything like that. They often just chatted about anything. Um, but in that, there was a discipling that was happening. All the time, there was a discipling that was happening and I was growing. And they were encouraging me in a way to imitate them. Um, my first community leaders, JJ and Sonia, I remember actually sitting in their lounge in Milton and often watching their marriage, watching how they talked to each other, watching how they interacted with each other. Because I didn't have a good example of marriage. And so they taught me what a married couple should look like. Um, and then I found brothers and sisters. I found friends for the first time, really, that were actually 
and that I could knit my heart to. I even found a wife, which is wonderful. <laughs> I put that, I found Anita. She was originally a friend and then became a wife, which is wonderful. Um, and it hasn't always been easy. It's not some idealistic story. You know, we battled a lot of alienation and struggling with belonging and do we fit and is this really where God wants us? But because we were in family and because we were not just alone, we could grow up and be molded into something that we are today. There was a maturity that resulted. Um, yeah, I think I, I remember on my when I worked as an intern, I worked at Red Cross Hospital and sometimes I would have experiences um, working with kids or teenagers that have been in the foster care system since young. And what was always so tragic about these um, orphan children that then would be in multiple foster homes was the fact that they grew up with very skewed ideas and a very skewed sense of relationship, um, often unable to really, they hadn't had nurture, they hadn't had guidance, they hadn't been matured with, with people, they hadn't had anyone to look to or to model. And so they, had, they would do odd things. I mean, I remember one kid that compulsively would hoard food, which is quite a common thing. Um, always one would find food at his bed or food behind in his, in his cupboards or whatever because he would take whatever he could get whenever he, was, whenever he had the opportunity. And he didn't need to do this in his family, obviously, but that was how he had learned to, to be. And so I think Christians outside of family become like this as well in, the, in, in our day and age. Walking around kind of spouting a whole lot of theories about this is what God is doing or this is what being a Christian is all about, but having no real grounding kind of thing and growing up skewed. And maybe having a little bit of TBN, and it's a bit of Bethel, and it's a bit of YouTube, but it's not actually um, the people of God that, that, that you're, you're with that are teaching you what it means to be a believer. And so I think for all of us that are here, this is why we're here. You're here because God has called you to be here. And why I know that is even the word church, I want to unpack this word a little bit. Um, Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 27. Let me just go into that quickly. Um, so it's a picture of marriage between a man and a woman, but Paul draws this amazing analogy with marriage to Jesus' relationship to his church, his bride. Um, okay, so let's read that. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So Christ is husband and Christ is head. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, in turn, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Yeah. So when Paul talks about the church in the New Testament, we find that word for the first time being used. Um, it's a, it's, it derived from a Latin word. The Latin word is ecclesia. You might have heard that word before. The ecclesia means the church. And it's composed of two participles. Two smaller words make up the word ecclesia. So I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is what I, I got off probably Wikipedia or something. Who knows? But the two words are ek is out of and kaleo is to call. Makes up the word ecclesia. And this is the definition of the church. It is those who are called out, a called out people. And in the Christian context, a called out people of God. Do you know that that's who you are? A called out people of God. And if you know that that's what church means, church is not an institution. It's not a place that you go to. In the Bible, it is not once used that way. Read through your New Testament. Not once is the church spoken of as a place where people meet. Only over time and over centuries, as the New Testament church became watered down and became kind of 
formalized? Did church become a place we go to to worship God? Actually, in the Bible, church is the called out people of God, and we are the church. You're not, a, you're not the church as an individual, I would say, but when you're an individual joined together with other believers, locally and globally, then we are the church. And God is coming back for his church, for his bride, and you don't want to be found outside of that. Okay? And Paul does talk about church sometimes as local church. Sometimes it might be a household, a gathering of saints meeting together. Sometimes it's the church in a city. And sometimes it is all the saints of God, all those that have loved God and known God from the beginning of time and even into eternity to come or into, into the future. The whole elect, all those that will one day be joined together with Christ. Yeah, our country is so full of, I, I thought of this and it's interesting we sang that song, Enthroned Upon the praises of a thousand generations this morning. It's so incredible because that is really the truth. We are, God is not enthroned. Um, you know, Anita and I went to Barcelona once. We saw the Sagrada Familia. That's um, Gaudi's big, beautiful temple that he, that he made or cathedral. And people go there every day. Hundreds of people are going to look at the Sagrada Familia. And it's a beautiful, beautiful structure, beautiful facade that points to something incredible. It's almost glorious. It points to something transcendent. But God is not there. It's just, a, it's just a stone structure. It's beautiful. Our God is enthroned on the praises of his people. It also says in Psalms, Psalm 22 says, the Lord God is enthroned on the praises of his people. So as we, we, we were worshiping this morning, we were building a throne for God. You know that? And the Lord was coming and he was sitting on his throne and he was enthroned when our praise was all directed toward him. Yeah. When we forget about ourselves and we start to lift him up, he's enthroned. Okay. But yeah, this church that we all belong to, you know, and that and local church is in trouble in, in, in the world in many ways. And we are compromised. And as you saw in that scripture, Jesus is coming back for a bride that he wants to look um, beautiful. He wants this bride to look like he wants this bride to look. Um, and the church, I think, thinks it has an idea of what Jesus wants and what is good. But I think they often are far off huh, in many ways. And so I think, what well, I know. Our job, and I think in Joshua generation, what we, we really seek to, to pursue is what does Christ really want his church to look like? And we want to pursue that. So if you're part of us, then you've got to know what are the marks of the true church of God. Um, I, I remember a, a, a time before Anita and I got married. I was very poor, so I used to save money for everything. I think I was very diligent as well because I saved all my money in envelopes that I would have. All my bills would be in cash, in envelopes, in my drawer. Not very, not very clever, um, you know, to not have my money in the bank is ridiculous. But I would draw everything out and keep it in envelopes and then go and pay my little accounts and pay things. So I saved up in an envelope money to buy Anita a dress. You might remember this. Probably a dress. I think I brought her True Words or something like that, maybe Christmas or whatever. But I certainly wanted to get something that she would look beautiful in and that she loved. So it was very, very colorful, I remember. But I think it also was something that I wanted to see her in, you know. Um, it was certainly not just a selfless motivation. There was some part of me that also wanted to see her looking beautiful in this particular dress that I bought. And the fact that she loved it was just a bonus, you know. And it's a little bit like that with, with Jesus. He, we, we might think, well, we look great and we look perfect and we're good. But actually, he wants to see us. He's got a certain idea of his bride and how he wants his bride to look. And we want to, be, we want to please him in turn and look that way. So we've got lots of examples. In, I mean, the early Acts church, I think, is the best place to go when it comes to um, yeah, looking at what God wants. Um, we don't want to be people. I just have one scripture I want to read from Matthew 7, 
um, Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, Jesus warns so often that we have to work to actually confirm our election, our calling, to make sure that we are in the body. And here he says, not everyone who sees to me, says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So is that not quite frightening, huh? that there might be people that are doing amazing things, but not necessarily by the Holy Spirit? Um, or there's a form of godliness, but there's no power, or there's no reality to that. And I don't want to be that person. I don't want to arrive before and stand before God and stand before the king. And then he says to me, depart from me. I never knew you. you know. And so we have to actually become the bride that Jesus would want us to be. Okay. So in Josh Jen, obviously, a lot of you will know the scripture from Acts 2 verse 42. You know, the believers were, were saved. There were, there were a whole lot of Jewish people that were originally meeting in synagogues. And then Peter preaches. And they realize that Jesus is Lord. And then they start to do things differently. And suddenly, from being in the synagogues and kind of reading the Torah and reading the law and um, performing their rituals that they would always do, they start to form a dynamic community. And this community holds to a whole lot of new values. They're much more loving toward one another. They're much more caring toward one another. There's something about it that is different. There's a lot of power. There's the, the, the Holy Spirit works. There are signs and wonders in this, in this group of people. And people... Others look at them and think, well, what is different about you? You know, you kind of, they, they probably still in many ways came across as Jewish people, devout in some ways, but there was something different because they discovered the Messiah. They'd come to know Jesus. And so I want to look at one of the churches in the New Testament, not that church, the, the early Acts church, but another church that Paul planted. Um, this was Paul's first church that he planted in Philippi. Okay, this was the first church he planted in Europe. You can read the story of how he actually plants this church by meeting a woman called Lydia in Acts. And it starts off actually with a bunch of, of ladies, obviously, is how the church starts. And then it from there expanded into the church at Philippi. And Paul loved this church. And when he, he, he writes his letter to the Philippians, he's writing from prison. And you can sense right from the beginning of the letter a lot of affection, warmth for this particular congregation this particular group of people that were meeting in Philippi, these believers. Um, he even calls them in part of, in one of the, the, the sections of this letter, he calls them his joy and his crown. So for Paul, they were a church that was living up to something of what God um, would want church to look like. And Paul was a master builder. So Paul knew what were the things that a church needed to look like to be um, the true church of God, you know. And this church seemed to be living up to that standard in many areas. So his letter is not scathing. It's not a rebuke. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he rebuked them massively for crazy things going on, incestuous relationships and getting drunk at communion and all kinds of things. But this Philippian church seemed to be doing something right. And so I want to look at a few things that these, these Corinthians were, were doing that I believe we need to also hold to as a people. Okay. Are you guys with me? Yeah. Okay. So, what are the marks that Paul felt reflected a truly devoted people? Let's go for Philippians 1, verse 27. Let's start here. And I am going to read a little bit of Scripture. I, I think that the Scripture is the best. It's better than my talking, reading the Bible. And this letter is beautiful. It actually says things so clearly. I'm not going to even have to elaborate much. 
So Paul, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'll stop there. So the first thing is unity. A church of God, the true church of God, will reflect a sense of unity amongst the peoples. And what is unity? When Paul speaks about having one mind and one spirit, he's not talking about some kind of cultish, we all think the same about everything on every single point. It's something different. What he's saying is that as a people, because we live that they lived in, in his time, it's the same as our time. We live in a very relative society. We live in a society that's very tolerant of many things. Um, and many things can go. And there, in, in the modern church today, there are many things being preached, actually, that are um, coming closer to what our culture believes is right and sort of straying from the truth of God. All right? And what that does is that starts to create a fracturing and a division in church. But the true church of God will hold to truth and will be pursuers of truth. And so this is what Paul is writing about. He wants this, this church to be a church that sticks of one mind and one spirit and strives for the true faith and strives to be um, in, in line with the truth of the gospel. All right? And I think this is something that we need to grow in. And as a church, it doesn't mean, as I say, we have to all think the same. But even if you're a, if you're a young believer or an old believer, I encourage you, Fight for unity in, in, in how you, in your pursuit for the truth, all right? If you're in community meetings, if guys are speaking and are saying, you know, what about things like divorce? Or what about, you know, I want to maybe move in with my, my boyfriend or my girlfriend and could, you know, actually as a church, we would break down our, our, our unity if we had to start to say, well, yeah, I suppose, yeah, we can actually compromise in this little area or that area is not such a big deal. We've got to stay true to the word of God, you know, on all areas. And that is when we will be a united people. The church around us is so seeker sensitive. I think there are many churches, probably even in this area, that you could go to where you would be hard-pressed to find anyone talking about sin, talking about, even talking about eternity, talking about hell. You know, Jesus spoke so much about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Jesus spoke about hell. So it's a reality, you know, but it's a truth that we maybe don't hold to much anymore in the world. Um, and we rather love to hear that we are loved, no matter what you're loved. That's it. Now go, go, go on your way. But then you're going to arrive at heaven's door or at, at, before God and maybe find he doesn't know you. you know. And then unity. Okay, unity. So firstly the truth. And then united is also, we are all different. Of course we're all different in this place. We've got diverse gifts. Okay, But a united church is one in which all the gifts are cooperatively being used well together. You know, Does that make sense? So it's not about the fact that we all are the same. We are obviously all very, very different. God has made us different, and he's given us different gifts. But his expectation is that we work together well with those gifts, and we cooperate well with each other in that. Um, there's no self-promotion in the kingdom. Paul talks about 
you know, let there not be conceit or rivalry. And that's the kind of thing that gets in the way of unity as well, is when people think, you know what, but I'm important. And maybe doing, doing next gen or whatever, or maybe being on worship, this is my thing. And this is the thing that I do. And it's my place. And so, you know, and don't touch it. And don't, don't, don't bump me off coffee or whatever. That's my thing that I do. It's my contribution. Actually, in the kingdom, it's about being able to say whatever's acting for the interests of others as well, you know, and saying, okay, this might be my thing, but how can it work with you? How can I work together with you in some ways? Okay. So let's all be a church like that as well. I loved it this morning. There was like the, there was diversity in the gifts flowing when Annalene came up and sang that song. Um, and God might want you to do that. You know, we're busy worshiping and actually put something in your heart and then you come forward and you share that and that builds all of us together. It creates a, a connection in us. All right. Second thing. All right. Philippians 3 verse 12 to 18. Let me read that. Not that I've already at- obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the second thing that I believe would really be a marker of a true church of God is a church in which all the people recognize the need to persevere and to endure, all right, to the end. Um, I think, we, again, we live in a society, I think the younger people here will know this well. It's, it's a society of quick fixes, of instant, um, instant gratification. Things come easy. And... This is an example, this is a, um, an analogy that David Pawson uses. He says salvation is not an escalator. Okay, some people like to think of salvation as an escalator. Once I've gotten on the first step and said, I repent of my sin, I believe in Jesus, made a commitment. It's like an escalator journey. I can just do whatever I want, and the escalator just rides me up to eventually to heaven. And the Bible doesn't seem to say that. Okay, and I'm not in any way knocking the sovereignty of God or God's ability to keep us, because God is the one who keeps us. God is the one who will eventually help us cross that finish line. It's only His grace. But there is a responsibility on us as believers as well to endure and to persevere every single day. And that is difficult. It's not always an easy road. And Jesus was so clear about that. He said, remain in me. Remain in the vine. Um, it's a narrow road. Enter through the narrow way you know, that leads to life. And He said, in the end, end times, many, many... The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? So that's a true church. The true church of God has got people in it that are willing to endure. Stickable people. Faithful people. All right? And so I encourage you this year, no matter what you hit with, you stick to the course. Stick to the course. Stay in this family. Um, Yeah. Makes sense. Because it's part of enduring. Otherwise, you're going to lose your inheritance. Otherwise, you don't obtain that prize at the end, okay? And Paul literally says, those of you who think that you're already perfect, maybe those of you with an escalator mentality, actually are are not mature. And he's saying that actually maturity or being perfect is actually knowing that you're not perfect and you're not yet mature and that you're on a journey. That's maturity. Maturity acknowledges that you've still got a road to walk. 
And one way to actually hold fast is to imitate. Imitate those amongst you who are getting it right in some way. Imitate those who you see. This guy seems to be carrying something of God. I want to imitate him or her. Start to do that. All right. My grandfather was an Irishman. I think this is yeah something that I want to just end with on this point. Um, perseverance will also lead to purity. It leads to holiness. Let me read Philippians 2, verse 12 to 16. This is what Paul also writes about the, those who endure. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And I tell you that guys who have an escalator mentality, who do not know about persevering, don't actually know how to stand when there's temptation or when um, there's a need to be pure in an area. Very, very quickly, they will fall. But those who have an idea of actually persevering in the faith and, grow, and moving on a journey know that the cost is too big to just keep on falling kind of thing. You know, and will strive for purity and then shine like lights. My grandfather, as I was saying, was an, he was an Irishman. He came to South Africa. He told me a story when I was growing up. Um, and it became a little bit of a, I think, a, a, not a legend, but I mean a, a bit of a life lesson in there for me. And he told the story more than once to me. So it was something that, that captured who he was. He came from Ireland. He was part of the Brethren. He was saved. Came to South Africa because of work. He knew nobody in South Africa when he arrived, probably the early 50s or 60s. Um, very early 50s, yeah. And on his first night in South Africa, a woman arrived at his hotel room that he had met, and she had on some kind of sexy negligee or whatever, and she just dropped all of the clothes in front of him, went into his hotel room and just dropped the thing. And he told her no, and he stepped back and he told her to leave that night. And that night, I thought to myself, you know what? He could have had what he wanted. Nobody would have known. He was absolutely new in the country. He had just met someone. He was traveling. He was only starting. It was the perfect opportunity for Satan to sift him and to get in there and to break something of his race. And because I really do believe this, because he said no, and because he endured that, it was part of why he went on. He ended up planting, I think, five churches in his life, was part of the Baptist church for years. And my brother and I, even I think, part of then that, um, that line, you know, of, yeah, so it's, it's something so amazing. But he could have lost it, and he didn't, because he had this mentality of perseverance to the end. Then, fellowship and partnership. Let's read Philippians 4, verse 10 to 20. This is another thing emphasized in this letter. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for, for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
And so here, Paul, we see again his relationship with this church. And I think a true church is a church that partners, that recognizes that when we are in fellowship with one another, we are not only in fellowship for the sake of being in fellowship, or because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are connected. It's not only that, but actually we are partnering together. Do you realize that? Do you know that if you are serving in next gen, or you're serving in worship, or you are um, bringing your gifts on a Sunday, and you're maybe prophesying into people's lives, or you're just walking a road with someone and discipling someone, you are partnering in the gospel with myself and with Brian and with Richard and with Andrew and whatever, you know, um, Skulk is partnering with me. We would never have met otherwise. But because we were in church together, God has brought us together in order that we partner together for the things of him. Okay? And a true church partners, and this Philippian church got this. They realized that Paul was there. He was the one who founded them. And so what they did is they partnered by giving and giving to him. The word koinonia, have you guys heard that word? How many people have heard koinonia, the Greek word? We've heard it a lot, often often speaks about this kind of intimate bond of fellowship that Christians have with one another. But you know that the word also means a collection or a contribution. Did anyone realize that? This is amazing. Church doesn't like to talk about money. But it's a collection or a contribution in some senses, the word koinonia. So to have fellowship with somebody means I'm partnering or I'm actually contributing to your needs. You're contributing to my needs. Okay? Amazing, eh? So... This is actually, I believe, what the church is called to do. A true church of God will partner with others and will actually be concerned about the welfare of other churches. For us in Somerset West, I, I mean, we've got the opportunity. Kailicha Josh Jen has started recently. We've got a lot to give, and I believe this year we're going to have to start to sow in, and we're going to have to start to partner. Um, Anita and I had the, recently the opportunity, one of the ministry areas in Josh Jen, we were asked to also give or encouraged to give. And, we, and I, I, this, this has helped me. By understanding this when I was preparing this message, has helped me realize what we're also doing. Is actually we are not just being kind of asked to give money, and there it is, okay, oh, here we go. Ouch, that hurts, sort of thing. Give money to this area. But actually, for the sake of the gospel moving forward, we are partnering with this ministry area that we're now giving into. You know? And that's an amazing opportunity. And what Paul says is when you do that, he says, It'll actually be a blessing for you. Paul said to them even in this thing, do you see how he said it? He said, I don't, need, I don't even need your gift. I'm well supplied. My God supplies my needs. I've learned how to be content. I've learned how to abound. I don't need you to give me money and supply to me. But I'm not going to stop you because actually that's to your credit that you're giving. One day you're going to be rewarded because of this giving. God's going to do something in you. Okay. And Paul wrestled with covetousness. This is also something I discovered with this in looking at this. Paul says he's learned to be content. And in Romans, Paul talks, you can read it in Romans 7, he talks about how when he read about covetousness, that it's wrong. It's as though something in his flesh just rose up and was ravaged by all kinds of covetous thinking, wanting more, wanting stuff. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, remember. The Pharisees were rich. The Pharisees had a lot. Okay? So Paul must have struggled with this. But somewhere along the line in his life, God was gracious enough to help him learn how to be content in all circumstances. Second to last, just stick with me for five or so more minutes. Spirit-led church, Philippians 3, verse 2 to 6. Let's read that quickly. Paul also says this to them, look out for the dogs. And he's talking about, I suppose, the, the, the religious Jews of the day in this. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul had reason to be religious and to boast in external things. But Paul says a true church of God, you know that you're insufficient in yourselves and you need to be in Christ and you need to be in him. And if anybody tells you otherwise, that it's about doing this or it's about doing that or it's about that work or that thing that you've got to achieve in yourself, then you're off, off course. And actually, those are like, as he says, like dogs or like evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. He's absolutely scathing when it comes to religion. And I want us, I feel, especially in Josh Jen, for us to be aware of this. We're in a very, very religious climate here. People like religion. Religion is comfortable. Religion makes a person feel good in myself because I'm doing something. I'm going to church and I'm being religious or I'm giving to a charity. Oh, man, I can look good in me. Now I'm good. I'm righteous in myself. And that's what religion does. That's the sneaky side of religion is it makes a person feel self-promotion, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. And leads people to be presentational. It leads you to show the good sides of yourself on the outside, but you hide the bad stuff kind of thing. Because actually, that's, that's a religious mindset. So it leads to death. And Paul hated it. And he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He was dead. His flesh was dead. Okay. And I want us to be a church that doesn't bridle the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit is moving, we are willing to follow the Holy Spirit's leading, you know, and not get stuck in our systems or stuck in our ways, okay? Let yourself even become like that. If you do things the same every day, maybe that's good. It's great to have a quiet time, maybe the same way every single day, but also allow those times to become invaded by the Holy Spirit because maybe what you're doing is you're putting a bridle on, on the stallion that is the Holy Spirit that wants to be set free, all right? So don't bridle the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be unbridled. And finally, I think the toughest one, but the one that is most glorious, at least to first century Christians, was suffering. All right. The early church, the first century church, counted a privilege. They watched Jesus die, so many of them, and they counted a privilege to die in the same way as Jesus died. And that is, I think, something that we've lost, at least in the Western church. I know the church in China would pray for us as a Western church because we don't have any persecution. And they think to themselves, that is crazy. How do we as a Western church even survive? How do we keep going when we've got no kind of um, real resistance or opposition coming against us? There's no reason to then fight on. It's just so easy, you know. And they pray for us. Um, I, I know this. I think it's from Brother Yun's book, you know, saying how the, the Chinese church worries about and prays for the Western church, even as we are supposed to be praying for them because they're under such persecution. They count it a joy to suffer. Philippians 3, verse 7 to 11. Continue where we left off. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that was Paul's outlook, is I want to be so in Christ that I will even 
share in his, in his sufferings and share in his death if, if that needs be. A guy called John Fox in the 16th century wrote a book that some of you might have heard of. Some of you have heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, chronicles all the persecutions in the church and looks at many, many individuals who died for Christ from the first century up till the 16th century. And I was reading some of that. You can get that book very easily. Get it on PDF versions. It's an old text. And it's incredible to read what those first century Christians endured. Some of it I thought to share today, but then some of it is almost too horrific. It's too brutal and barbaric to actually share in front of kids. Um, And this is what they went through. And these were not heroes. These were ordinary people. Okay, These were ordinary people like you and I. That's the thing that stands out. Is they're not all um, great teachers or religious leaders. Yes, the disciples, of course, were. They were apostles and church builders. But the rest of the church was just normal people. And when that day came and that time came when they suddenly were put to the test and asked to recant their faith, many of them found in that time that God gave them grace and they'd been running their race well and they actually longed in that moment just to go and be with him and would go through anything. Um, And God gave them that grace and he's promised that he will do that for us. One guy was called Polycarp um, in the first generation after the disciples. Um, And he was hunted down by four Roman soldiers. He was captured. He was something of a religious leader. And he asked them if he could pray for an hour before they executed him. They wanted to behead him there on the spot. And while he prayed for an hour, in, in, in Fox's book, he writes that these four Roman soldiers were then so convicted by watching this man pray, the Holy Spirit started to work, obviously, in them, that they then put down their swords and they said they also wanted to be counted for Christ. And they went with him back to um, wherever he was going to stand trial or be judged. And those four Roman soldiers were put to death immediately. And then Polycarp himself was not nailed to a stake to be burned, but he said he would stand at the stake to be burned. He would just stand. He wouldn't be tied or or tethered to, to the stake. And as they lit the fires, the fires burned and burned, and he didn't burn. And eventually someone had to stab him with a spear. And it became something of an absolute fear fell on these people that this man, that God was so, I don't know, working such a miracle even in that time. And the church strengthened and the church grew even more. And the spirit of Christianity was never crushed through every single one of these persecutions. Um, So that's the true church. So if we want to be part of the true church of God, we've got to be willing to suffer, but also know that in that there's going to be an incredible glory and that God works through that and God expands his church when there's opposition. And the opposition is coming. Hey, guys, I think slowly we feel it in different areas where we're being told it's not right for you to talk about this subject or that subject or teach on that thing. And we know what some of those are, you know, but we've got to stand firm and stand firm to the end in these things.